0: This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com/rightbook. We are living in stressful times and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best for you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/writebook today and get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel writebook This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. The story of one of the boldest feats of self-emancipation, by an enslaved person in American history encompasses daring, determination, and disguise. The story of William and Ellen Craft's courageous escape from slavery in the Deep South and their subsequent roles as pivotal figures in the international abolitionist movement and as advocates for their people during Reconstruction is epic. A Black American Odyssey, it depicts elements of slavery and racism in the United States, the incredible cruelty of the system, its savage separation of families, and at its most basic, the violation of its Christian principles in a nation supposedly formed under God. The skillful storytelling by Ilyan Wu in her book Master Slave Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom, brings the story of Ellen and William Kraft's escape and life alive with a level of detail and understanding, adding yet another level and lens of our country, the abolition movement, the heroes, and the villains of that time. I am incredibly delighted to welcome Ilyan Wu to Just the Right Book. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here today. So, you know, there are so many dimensions that we will hopefully get to in this story, but let's start with the pivotal escape. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was struck by as you share with us what the escape was, that the precision of the detail that was necessary And the risk of even the slightest gap in how they seemed or what would happen made me, I mean, as I was reading about it, I could not imagine the amount of fear that consumed them for all four days of, I I couldn't, you know, we're not capable of understanding that was like. So share with us what this escape was? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the fear which they recollect from
1: the moment they step out—actually, even before that—the one of the reasons why it took them as long as they did, initially to decide to get married, and then eventually to decide to go on this what you call a Black American odyssey together. I love it. Is because the stakes were so incredibly high. I mean. You can see these the, the consequences written in the law books in the sort of most brutal and simple ways. The, mm. the punishment, the number of lashes that you can get, physical torture as a result of even being discovered without a pass. Let alone trying to escape. So they know all this. They've seen since they were children. People sold away. Loved ones sold away. They've seen people punished brutally right near the courthouse square of Macon. They've seen, you know, William uh, testifies to seeing people burnt alive. I mean, just horrible things. Just mm. mauled by by hounds. I mean, this is how escapes like this are prevented because there is this sort of community punishment, communal punishment for all. So as a community, as an enslaved person, the crafts are witness to these things that could happen to them. And it's a a method of sort of um, social control that Mm -hmm. enslavers used. So there's that huge fear. Every step they take, each step carries that fear. And yet they decide to, to go on this journey. But this is why they had to plan absolutely meticulously or so right. Because any slip could le- lead them into this horrible abyss. And what they did was so gutsy. They are traveling not by hiding, not by any kind of sort of secret path. They are traveling brazenly out on The railroad, you know. It's the
0: opposite of the Underground Railroad. They're on the railroad.
1: Yeah. Because it's so, I mean, this is where they were in Georgia, it used to be that it might even be more convenient to try to escape via Florida or Mexico, you know, going further south instead of north. Uh, North is very, very far away, but those routes closed down in the 1840s. They closed down after the Indian Wars, after the Mexican-American War. They can't go anywhere but north to be free. And the easiest way to travel for people of means and power is to go by a train. That only entered Macon in 1843, five years before their escape. So they are taking the latest technologies to go
0: on this incredibly epic escape. So they're both enslaved. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Ellen, just so that we frame it. This is Ellen and William Craft, both enslaved people, who then disguise themselves as master and slave to take this trip. Yes. Ellen, give us her background as how she could even pull off the possibility of being a white man.
1: Oh yeah. So this is a question they got all the time once they start speaking about their story in the abolitionist lecture circuit. How is it what white audiences want to know is how a woman as light-skinned as Ellen could ever be enslaved. And of course, hiding behind that is the specter of the rape of generations of enslaved women at the hands of their enslavers and just anybody else who happened to be there in white society. So Ellen was a daughter of a, at the time, 18-year-old woman named Maria, an enslaved woman. And Maria was enslaved by a man named James Smith. James Smith was in his late 30s at the time of Ellen's birth. And he was a lawyer or surveyor, all different kinds of things. And if you look in his law books, there's no such thing as consent. No, no such thing as the rape of an enslaved woman. So as a piece of his property, he could do, Maria being James Smith's property, he could really do with her and dispose of her as he pleased legally. Ellen was born to Maria when Maria was still was still 18 years old, enslaved by James Smith. And we don't know whether his legal wife was aware of, of Ellen's identity at this time. But it soon became very clear because Ellen bore a striking physical resemblance to her father. And that included the light complexion that both angered her enslaver, angered Mr. Smith,
0: and became the means of her escape. And so she dresses as a man. Mm -hmm. She's illiterate. What does she do in this disguise to, not only does she have to pass as a white man, she's obviously Mm -hmm. doesn't have a beard. She doesn't have the features of a man. She's illiterate. She can't write. So what does she do to even aid in the most dramatic of the disguises that she's white? Mm-hmm. Well, so
1: this is the real genius of the escape is that, and, and the the counterfeit identity is that she's using, she's crossing lines of gender, passing as a man, race, passing as white, class, passing as wealthy, and ability, passing as physically disabled. So it's, the disability is actually a really interesting part of the disguise that kicks in that Ellen gets as an idea almost towards the end, because, because they do realize that Ellen's going to have to sign for William as her slave. She's going to have to sign when she gets to hotels and other places, other stopover places. And how are they going to do this? She can't, she's been denied literacy. She's grown up in a house where literacy and education are prized, but she can't read or She can't, and she can't write. And so, by disguising herself as a disabled man putting her right arm in a sling she can ask, she can sort of point to her arm and be and say you know i can't can you can you sign for me she also has poultices which are kind of like wet band-aids that she has put on her face and that hides the fact that she has no facial hair it hides some of her expression also gives her kind of a reason not to talk so much mm-hmm. because Obviously, if she's like having sort of some sort of face pain, it's more difficult for her to communicate. And then she asks for glasses, for green glasses, and those hide her eyes and their expression. So the disability is really a critical later idea that she gets to perfect her disguise.
0: And Ilyon, is the fact that she worked in the house Mm -hmm. give her the capacity because her speech pattern had to be of a person that was wealthy. Her knowledge of the customs and gestures, she was acting. And was it was it just because she had been working in the house and had been such a keen observer of all of their behaviors that she was able to do that?
1: Absolutely. That was a huge advantage for her. So she grew up she grew up in a household where she had you know, exposure to you know, lots of different people coming in and out, traveling in and out. The Smiths were great hosts and had a lot of visitors. She also had half siblings who were, well, actually one of them actually ended up becoming her enslaver, but she had half siblings who were the sort of young people of higher class and standing that precisely the type of like sort of college bound, maybe educated young man that she was going to try to impersonate. And she actually does such a good job with this that even the limitations that she has in her costume, because her costume is not perfect, she is able to overcome all that. And one of the most interesting ironies, I think, is that you know, when she was growing up as a child, as I said, the, the mistress of the house, Mistress Smith, was angered by Ellen's being mistaken for a child of the family. So Ellen was kind of passing for white despite herself. That's like the last thing that she wanted to do as a child. And so in a way she kind of had to study from childhood, what defines, what makes one appear black and enslaved? Mm. What makes one appear white? She had to study that sort of in the reverse way in order to not appear white. So she really kind of internalized, I think those codes from childhood. And then she was able to harness those things, those skills that she had in her childhood was a real source of pain and suffering because inevitably she would have gotten punished for anything that brought her mistress unhappiness.
0: That becomes precisely her means of power. And tell us about her husband, William.
1: So William was a skilled cabinet maker. You can actually see at the Avery Research Center in, in Charleston, you can see his handiwork, this beautiful box that he's made. He too had seen his family taken away from him at a very young age and when he was about 10 years old he he started an apprenticeship as a cabinet maker in Macon. He was probably of mixed race ancestry there's a lot of there's some speculation mostly he's described as either black or mulatto. He remembered two of his grandparents being of full African descent but he doesn't account for the rest of his family. So his his the, his particular racial identity, not identity, sorry, makeup is, is not certain. But he was definitely much darker in complexion than Ellen. He was born in 1823, so he's a few years older than Ellen. And they met apparently when they were teenagers and fell in love. But love was something that they initially postponed because Ellen did not want to have children who would be in bondage and who might be taken away from her as she'd been taken away from her mother.
0: So they embark on a four-day, I, I kept calling, in my brain, I was calling it like a a train to a camel to a boat <laughs> because it ended up being even more arduous and more levels of risk. And And they landed in Philadelphia, but Describe for us a moment that seemed terrifying to me. They get on and she's in the white only part of the train and William is where they allow slaves and the enslaved to be. And describe what happens when a man sits down next to her who she had literally served the day before for dinner at the Smith's house.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah that is definitely one of those sort of your heart is just jumping. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what that must've been like for her, especially because it it comes at that whole departure for Megan is just terrifying. And they've already, they've already had two close calls. They've already met somebody who had once been in love with Ellen and they already meet they see the cabinet maker from William's shop, the very man who gave him the permission to be on this journey and apparently had some like instincts that something was off. So, you know, they're just sitting down. Ellen's like, okay, phew, those things are behind. And then she looks next to her and they're sitting right beside her is a Mr. Cray as identified in the book. And Mr. Cray says something like, it's a fine morning, isn't it? And you know it's a line that kind of gives you chills because he he has not identified himself, and she's what she's thinking. He must know who I am. He must have been sent, but she doesn't really know how to play it. And so, what can she do with that moment? Right? She does she speak? Does she not speak? She has been raised in a culture where you must respond if you are an enslaved woman and a white man is saying something to you. You must respond. And yet she doesn't. So that's the first moment where she she takes a pause and she ignores him. And he kind of waits for a minute. And then he says again, it's a fine day, isn't it? And at at a certain point, people are starting to look at him and look at her, look at this young man who's being so rude. And finally, she, she decides to look over and say, and and give her a scent. Just one word, just yes, not yes, sir, not yes, anything else, just a yes. And fortunately for her, and this happens again and again, because people sort of sympathize with her. There's another person, another another traveler who says, oh, it must be, it's a pity. It must be difficult to be deaf. And so finally, Mr. Cray has like a reason for you know, it's sort of a, a face-saving reason for her not having communicated before. And the moment is diffused, but it 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 is absolutely one of the most terrifying moments that they describe in their encounter. And it's
0: early. It's early in this it is. trip. So we we're we're going to encourage our listeners to have to read the book to get the details of those four days. Because I think those four days alone are cinematic.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, as you're reading it, you have a sense they're going to get there because it's called an epic journey. But it's as if you don't know how how they will get to where they land. And they first land in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And one might have thought, given its place in history and being the city of brotherly love, that this might be the perfect place to settle down. Mm -hmm. Yet, Philadelphia, despite some incredibly generous overtures by some, was not so simple a place in those days. Describe the Philadelphia that they arrived at in 1848.
1: So Philadelphia is complicated. It's, you know, it's known and celebrated rightly as a birthplace of liberty but it's also right over the line from the south and there are so many different sides to the city if you read certain travel guides you know they're the 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 streets are like super organized they have running water there are these beautiful green shutters and red brick homes and you know people are scrubbing out the streets that's one part of philadelphia but there's sort of like another side of philadelphia And in fact i found this like debaucher's guide to the city, which says something like, you know, the city of brotherly love is full of sisterly love too, if you know where to look for it. And it's quite risque. So there, there's like a sort of a gritty crime ridden side to Philadelphia. Philadelphia also has a lot of racial tension. Mm. There are race riots in this city through the 1840s. And It's a place because it's so close to the South and because there's so many Southerners who have second homes and such there. There's even a street that's called like Carolina Row. It's a place where it's risky if you're a fugitive. Kidnappings, especially of children, are quite common even before the passage of the infamous Fugitive Slave Act. So you have a lot, of, you know, as with any urban environment, there's so many different things going on. You've got the activists, you've got the abolitionists, you've got the Quaker circles, but you've got immigrants coming in. You've got a lot of different competing interests. You've got Southerners and not just Southerners, but all Americans, many Americans are are connected either directly or indirectly to the institution of slavery and uh, and profiting from it.
0: This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com/rightbook. We are living in stressful times and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best for you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/writebook today and get 10 percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P.com/writebook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book. One of my favorite interviews that I've gotten to do over the years, one was with David Blight, Mm -hmm. who, as I'm sure you know, wrote about Frederick Douglass. And among the many things I learned in that book was the idea that there was this extraordinary lecture life in the U.S. where Mm -hmm. literally thousands of people would show up and be riveted for hours by people like Frederick Douglass and as quickly became a fact by the crafts. Mm -hmm. So how did they begin to be on the lecture circuit and why were they willing to put themselves at risk that way?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, the matter of how really comes down to a single man named... William Wells Brown. And he is one of my favorite secondary characters in the book. And it's interesting because the crafts don't mention him in their own narrative. They he, don't? His, no, his name does not even appear. That's that's the thing that's really interesting. They they give a lot of details in some areas. They talk about the Southern escape. The whole middle section is missing. There's nothing about the abolitionist lecture circuit. They mention Robert Purvis, who's another interesting character, but they don't mention William Wells Brown they don't mention anything about the 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 crisis in boston either but i'm i'm getting ahead of myself william wells brown is this he's a best selling author he's a dynamic lecturer he really improvises lectures like sort of based on the feeling of the crowd and has a whole repertoire of stories and songs and he just lights lights up these halls so just because he's t- talking about this incredible subject matter, the content, it doesn't mean guaranteed audiences. I should note that there are some lecturers who are, for example, Lewis Hayden, who are hired briefly and then sort of like sent away or like had their lecture tours shut down. So you had to be really good at presenting yourself and telling a story, which William Riles Brown was. And when he hears about the crafts and I mean, he knows right away, even before he's met them, that this is a great story and this is going to play really well. When he meets them and they are, you know, everybody talks about how beautiful they are and well-spoken and, um, you know, really kind of charismatic as a pair, he thinks this is something that America has to see. And he's right. And so he asks them, they're originally planning to go, well, first they're planning to go to Canada, but then they sort of think about going to Boston. But Even before any of those settling ideas really settle in, Brown says, will you join me and will you tell your story? So for them to do this, again, we talked about like the risk of making that escape to begin with, but they were risking continually, I mean, to the ends of their lives. And this was a huge risk for them to go on the circuit, basically become known and, uh, and basically have like targets on their back. But they decide to do this. And I think they decide to do this because in the end, their escape has to do with much more than their own freedom. They They are determined to fight for themselves, but for their loved ones, also for their loved ones, and really all those kept in bondage. And with that goal in mind, the three of them Brown and the crafts go tearing, zigzagging all the way across New England, back and forth to tell their story.
0: One of the things that I found fascinating is, and I'm trying to think. I, I hope I use the right language to for us to think about this, because she was so white, mm-hmm. she seemingly upended people's own. Notion, You know, they were sort of, too many people were stuck in the idea that, well, if you're black, yeah, I get why you're enslaved, you know, but now here was a white woman and she was enslaved Mm -hmm. and they had, people had judgment that enslaved people were somehow less capable. And here were these two wildly capable people. So it seemed like not only... Were they riveting in their story, but they, along the way, were upending notions mm-hmm. that people might have had. Was there anything that you found in your research that talked about that aspect of their being such popular lecturers? Oh yeah, absolutely. You can see
1: that actually when you read between the lines of William Wells Brown's introductory speeches about William and Ellen Craft. So when he first introduces them in New England, one of the very first things he lays out is the fact that these are people who, first of all, they acquire their own costumes, the, the outfit, the disguise. William bought them. William Craft had earned a certain amount of money. And he was able to do this through a special arrangement with his enslaver. These are two independent, self-sufficient people who have a lot to offer Northern society as contributing members, as artisans and such, because one of the arguments that came up again and again, like slaveholders would say, you know, that basically that enslaved people needed this, that they needed black people couldn't take care of themselves. That in fact, if you emancipate people, that would be a complete disaster. They'd have all these people coming up to the North and you'd have to basically like create some sort of charities to be able to support them. William Wells Brown is pointing to the crafts and saying, they don't need charity. They are absolutely, I mean, they are boons to any community that they join. And it does upend These sort of stereotypes about enslaved people that both Southerners and Northerners, white Northerners, carry in their alive.
0: Well, there was one line, I forget where this occurs in the book, but somebody who was uh, kind of debating Ellen about abolition and brought up this argument that are they really going to, are blacks really going to be able to take care of themselves in our yes. line? Of, we've been taking care of ourselves and our masters. Yes. I think we're <laughs> going to do fine. <laughs> I lo- and I thought, you, you know, that quote from her gave a dimension, you know, which the book does, the dimension of the kind of independence and sassiness mm-hmm. that, in, you know, I really got that sense from Ellen. I mean, William is obviously very independent, but the sassiness that Ellen seems to have was mesmerizing to me. Mm-hmm. So before we deal with them in Boston, I, I'd like to talk about the element of the book that I found the most shocking and you know, which is maybe a testament to my lack of understanding of U.S. history. But the Fugitive Act of 1950. Yeah, 1850. Meant that every citizen was obligated Mm -hmm. at risk of breaking the law to return a fugitive slave. Yes. And there had been a law on the books, but it didn't have the teeth Mm -hmm. that this law did. And the scenes that you describe in Congress about the passage of the act, share with us how Northerners bought into passing this law. And who were they? Who were the main characters that got this to be a law that would be, in fact, enforced? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, so there's a great triumvirate uh Daniel Webster of Massachusetts Henry Clay of Kentucky and John C Calhoun of South Carolina he's sort of the the least active there it's clay who from Kentucky who sort of introduces the idea and daniel webster who sells it and i think it's hard for us to imagine right now how close we were to civil war then in 1850 All the newspapers report this. Like there's this like explosive feeling. People are, the leaders are actually like coming to physical blows. The tension is extremely high. It's because this is right after the Mexican session. The country is growing as never before. And this question over which territories, which part of the United States is going to be allowed to have slavery is looming large. And then the question of fugitives is huge because as fugitives like, the crafts are crossing the boundaries, they're showing that this is really one nation. Even if we try to sort of like fix a boundary here or there, we are all linked together. And if they're defying that, if they're crossing those boundaries and able to escape from the services that they're supposedly owing in the enslaved states, then how how can this institution be protected? And Southern slavers are just absolutely enraged. And they're arguing that the nation would never have been founded if it hadn't been for this sort of tacit agreement that slavery is going to be left alone. And so there's all sorts of disagreements about this, like reading and rereading of the constitution. But what Daniel Webster comes in and says, he says, you know, he's, he sort of takes both sides to task. He says, you know, to the Southerners, actually slavery was meant to die out and you guys are just extending this because you've gotten really selfish over cotton. But then he pauses at one point in this really dramatic speech. I mean, there are people like filling the halls, and he's like, he's kind of a really dramatic looking guy himself. He's got this great big forehead, and there's like sweat pouring down his face as he gets sort of the climax of this. And he's, you know, he said, both sides of the United States have been wrong. But he said, where the North is really wrong is in the execution of the Fugitive Slave Act. Cause that was a promise. That was a promise that we made and we must keep. And that's the moment that according to some historians is 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 a moment that might have uh put off the civil war for for as long as it you know it was put off until they yeah. um, it was a huge breathtaking moment. And it was a moment at which actually a lot of Northerners sort of sighed with relief. It was like, as well as in the South, it was this idea that we can, all right, we can go on. We're going to just kind of like try to hold ourselves together. We're going to promise to commit to this. And so this is why actually once this act passes, there is such confusion in the North. How are we going to actually execute on this promise?
0: And, you know, the other thing that you so carefully depict is, I mean, there are any number of heroes, Mm -hmm. white and Black, who every day are risking their lives and being active in the abolitionist movement. Yet, there was a complicity, once you understood how this act was passed, Mm -hmm. that really made the North, I I looked at the North in an entirely different way, you know, that there's a a notion I think we have that if Blacks were in the North, they were good. You know, Mm -hmm. slavery had been banned decades before in most states, but once you realize the teeth of this bill, the North was in bed with the South in executing on this law. Mm Mm-hmm
1: it definitely was. And it was, uh, so I think one of the reasons why the crafts were able to escape the way they did is because it happened. They were the first test case right. in Boston of the Future Slave Act. So nobody knew what, was it, what they were doing. Even basic questions such as, so the marshal is like, even though he's anti-slavery himself, he's ready to capture the crafts. And he and Daniel Webster and others are like talking about, well, where are we going to hold them? What kind like, do we put them on a ship? Like where where are we going to like hold what are we going to do? With, exactly, with the assumption that we we're going to capture them. But they don't know they haven't worked out any of these practical details. And so the crafts are able to sort of make this insane escape. I mean,
0: it was almost like the Keystone Cops. I mean, yeah. describe a bit. Uh, I mean, if it weren't so frightening and horrible. So they, for the purpose of our listeners, the the Crafts have settled in Boston. The Boston community is strongly and pervasively abolitionist. Ellen and William have set up businesses. They've been welcomed by people. They're integrated into the community. And then this bill passes and their enslaver, Collins, realizes this is the right time to send two slave catchers up to Boston. So give us a little thumbnail sketch of just how Boston treated these two men, Uh, I was going to say gentlemen, which they weren't, (laughs) men from the South.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, these men for the South are people who the crafts knew. William had worked in a cabinet shop with one of them, uh, John Knight, who's this, this like gangly, dark haired guy. And the other guy is like a short kind of stubby looking guy with uh, Sandy Brown hair. He was the making jailer and he was reputed to have brutally physically punished Ellen's uncle to the point where the uncle nearly died. So these are scary men, but they are the ones who end up experiencing a new kind of fear in Boston, because as you say, Boston stands up. And I have to Put a caveat here that this is a part of Boston. I think that it's possible, you know. Yeah. We want to, we want to applaud those people who did stand up, but for everybody who did stand up, there are others who were saying we need to stand behind the law. There were all these young men who are ready to volunteer to be part of the slave hunting posse. There were other slave hunters who were coming up hoping to get some kind of a bounty. So Boston was divided. That said there was a core group led by the black activists who rose up together really in ways that were completely overwhelming and shocking to these, uh, to these two men from the South. So in the South, you know, enslaved people, black people cannot carry guns. They cannot ride horses. They can't, they're not, you're not supposed to talk, back. it shouldn't even be any kind of like talking back. All of a sudden they're in a world that's pretty much turned upside down. They're seeing protests. They're seeing black people on horses. They're seeing multi-racial army of people standing up with weapons, without, they're seeing uh street boys throwing stuff at them, you know, like, People uh, of all walks of life are are challenging them in the streets of Boston.
0: And ultimately, the two slave catchers retreat to New York, maybe permanently, maybe not. But once the president at this moment was Fillmore, Millard mm-hmm. Fillmore, and they was either a real threat or a perceived threat that he would enforce the law by using the military Mm -hmm. to enforce the law and go to Boston after these, you know, Keystone copy guys (laughs) uh, um, leave after they'd been arrested three times and had to post bail. I mean, it's just a crazy story. Yeah, But the Crafts decide that they will never be safe in the U.S., And they, therefore, in another torturous journey, leave to England where they settle for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And you end the book there, but give us the coda that lets us know about the rest of their lives, which was as miraculous. And then they end up back in the South and everyone will just have to read the book. But I want to make sure that we we talk about this piece of it. There is a lot of debate today about what should be in our curriculum Mm -hmm. in studying African-American black history. Mm -hmm. And I consider myself a relatively educated person and I had aha moments in this book and Kind of a new visceral understanding of circumstances in a way that was just slightly different than I had ever Mm -hmm. understood it. And having done this research, which I also want to ask you about, Mm -hmm. what is your point of view on the need and importance for studying history like the stories in your book?
1: hmm. I mean, this is American history. This is that crafts are truly American heroes, who I feel like should be studied in that way. I think it's it's uh, it's too easy to sort of siphon off or divide up history, saying it's like, all right, this is black history. This is Asian history. This is indigenous history. This is and then this is American history as if it's something separate. Right, these are all interwoven, and that's really what I've tried to do in the book. That's one of the reasons why I really try to sort of pull back and give that national picture. I had at least one reader read the book early on and say, "Well, do you need uh, Clay and Daniel Webster and 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 Calhoun? Can you sort of like reduce them?" But for me, it was important to make them full characters, and you know they're they're walk-ons in the craft story, but. You know, I didn't want to just sort of narrowly focus on the crafts or or do like or more sort of traditional kind of history, like a, you know, white American history, see those things in, in a way separate. I wanted to connect all those mm. together and show how these histories are really enmeshed. Because too often we see Daniel Webster as this, you know, voice of freedom yeah. and, and liberty and everything. We don't see those other sides of them, of him. And he's a particularly interesting character because he's got this kind of like really kind of dark personal side as well. And those are things that I wanted to point out. So, you know, when you go to Spaniel Hall or wherever it is, or you go to, you, you see these portraits of these people, they look sort of very abstract and, you know, they're in these heroic poses. But, I, you know, I learned about Daniel Webster like being like a big gourmand. He was kind of like gluttonous. A drinker. Learned, yeah, a drinker. Um, he had all sorts of like a affairs going on, including with this, you know, uh, one woman, Sarah Goodrich, who has this like, I'm going off topic here, but she has like this amazing, exquisite miniature, which is just focused on her breasts. And, (laughs) And it was like pocket size. And this is a man who carried around this like Exquisite miniature of a woman's breasts in his pocket, loved oysters, you know, had his own drinking room in the Capitol. He was a man of flesh and blood. And I feel like it's important not just to tell the histories together in this entwined way, but to tell the histories of people as full people as well, and not just sort of like speeches or talking heads.
0: You know, now that you describe it that way. The notion that I come to the older I get is that we have to learn to keep seemingly inconsistent, incompatible notions in our head with each being true. Yes. And this is true even of the crafts, Mm -hmm. that they are courageous, but they are also independent. They also Mm -hmm. make decisions that other people... Might not have made, but I think the fact that you made this story holistic is what made it so powerful. Is that you see Daniel Webster or Henry Clay, or not that I ever thought of Fillmore as a towering figure, but (laughs) 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 literally or figuratively, but the context of the lives that these people were really living and making mm-hmm. horrible decisions and good decisions and being brave and being weak and capable of betrayal i mean that's what makes the story powerful thank you and it's what i mean it for me it's what makes
1: history interesting i think it's easy to say somebody asked me once like well what do you think of daniel webster and of course he's done a lot of he was responsible for ha- passing this fugitive Slave Act, but I didn't want to judge him mm-hmm. on the page. I and mean, even when I speak about these people, these characters, these re- real living beings, I want to sort of share all the information that I have and let other people, let readers discover for themselves and not have me telling them, oh, Daniel Webster was a bad man. He was a womanizer and he was all these different things because he was so many different things at once. He was... He was a man who carried around the miniature in his pocket. He was a man who said yes to the Fugitive Slave Act. He was also a father who had just lost a son in the Mexican War. And he knew what was at stake if you if you enter another war, if you enter another civil war. And that, that goes for the others too. Henry Clay had also lost a child. He was somebody who spoke against slavery even as he was an enslaver. And I think actually... The more that we can sort of do that, I mean, I really, I'm look, I'm even thinking about this in terms of like how we looked at at monuments or images. If we can, if we can have sort of a yes and approach, if we can say yes, there's this, there's this monument here, right, and and it's, uh, it's bigoted and it's saying these, you know, it's carrying these really negative messages. But we create another monument right next to that, and those things talk to each other. It's the sort of adding on a way of looking at history that I think maybe can help us heal.
0: hmm I hope you're right. You know, I want to end on this one note because I thought it was both inspiring and heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. The story of the crafts is, to me, a series of beginnings and endings and successes and failures that they had, and their perseverance was breathtaking. I mean, it was just breathtaking. But share with us what, after 20 years in England, where Ellen and William have six kids, and they come back to the South and set up the only Black-owned plantation a school, an environment that, to have read it, felt like utopian. Describe what they set up and describe what happened. They have two such ventures,
1: which, again, shows how extraordinary and resilient and Idealistic they were because the first time they set up an agricultural educational cooperative in South Carolina, and night riders came and they
0: burned that down. I mean, burned it down. Yes, burned it down. <laughs> I mean, a normal person after what they had lived through would consider that impossible to overcome. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, everything they had, they ju- they managed to run out with their family. But again, returning the fear that we began with, it must have been terrifying. I mean, this America, this Southern landscape, post-Civil War was just terrifying. And that reign of terror grew even more intense as the late 19th century progressed in this post-Reconstruction period. And yet they decided to do it again. They they started another in cooperative Georgia. in Georgia, <laughs> about a hundred miles from from Savannah. Again, the only black owned plantation for who knows how many miles around. When they started, there were snakes. There were, I mean, the houses were in terrible disrepair. Everything was completely broken down. And it was Ellen who really took charge in rebuilding these places. They built a schoolhouse, which was, she was proud of this as, as the best schoolhouse for many miles, black or white. It doubled as a church. And they had people coming from far and wide, you know, walking for hours to be able to learn and to worship together. And one quotation that I just, I I come to time and again is from a 106 year old woman who had 15 children on this land. Mm. And these are children who are sold away from her one by one. She had been enslaved on the very grounds where the crafts opened this, this dream school, the stream cooperative. And she said, well, we don't have her name. Unfortunately, it's one of those things about collecting these stories is that we don't have a name for her, but we have her words. And what she said was, It used to seem as though the devil was turned loose on this plantation. Blood from the backs of the people was made to flow like water, but now, bless the Lord, it has been turned into a temple of the living
0: God. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, Ellen and William wrote their own narrative. It was like a 60-page book. And as you referred to, their narrative didn't include many things, but did you get a sense in your research how they might have reflected on their lives? Mm, Looking back at all that time? Yeah.
1: Well, we have a late account of Ellen coming back to Philadelphia and recounting the fear that she felt, not so much on the journey, but once she got to Philadelphia, that kidnappers could come at any time. And she calls it an old story, but a story worth remembering.
0: Hmm. So
1: I think they do, I mean, we don't have, I wish we had some kind of diary, you know, where they're in who knows, maybe there was a diary that was burned down in uh in in South Carolina. That's something right. we'll never know. We don't have a specific instance of them sort of reflecting back on their lives, but I can only imagine that with all that they tried, all that they kept pushing themselves and and reinventing their lives, retelling and retooling their lives' narrative. I would hope that that would give them some level of, of satisfaction.
0: Well, you sure would end. hope so. I mean, yeah. when you think of all the rules they broke mm-hmm. and all that they accomplished, and you know, put not only their own children onto a path of of purpose and freedom, but all the people they inspired. Mm -hmm. So Elon, I want to thank you for writing this book. I mean, we sort of moved around a lot of topics and there's lots that uh, we didn't get to, but I hope we give listeners the motivation to just want to learn more because I think it's one of the most powerful stories I've read about that time. And I think it's because of just what you said that it feels whole Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel judgmental. It feels like this is what was happening. Mm -hmm. This is how we as a country operated. So I'd like to close with, What's your hope for the book? I hope that the book can serve as a kind of
1: meeting ground for people who are looking at history in different ways, because I am trying to show that intersection. I hope that I hope that people who know about the crafts already will learn something new. There's a lot of research discovery in here. But I hope that for a lot of people who haven't heard their names, that they come to see the crafts as synonymous with or together with American history and part of that Mm -hmm. big picture.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking with Ilyan Wu, the author of Master Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. Epic indeed. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for writing this book.
1: Thank you so much for having me
0: today. It's really been a pleasure, Roxanne. Great. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. Justtherightbook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at R.J. Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books, here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you, so if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code PODCAST, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio, produced by Roxanne Cody and Michael Selick. Our editor is Gino Cordon at pleasantpodcast.com. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email me any comments, suggestions, observations. We would love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at rjjoya.com. I do hope you will subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Just The Right Book Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.